This is honestly. I don't think it's a radical statement to suggest that free speech is the single most important tool that we have as citizens of a democracy. And until quite recently, that virtue, the virtue of free speech, it was a particular source of pride among liberals. The purpose of college is not just, as I said before, to transmit skills. It's also to widen your horizons, to make you a better citizen, to help you to evaluate information, to help you be more creative. The way to do that is to create a space where a lot of ideas are presented and collide and people are having arguments and people are testing each other's theories. And over time, people learn from each other because they're getting out of their own narrow point of view and having a broader point of view. So when I went to college, suddenly there were some folks who didn't think at all like me. And if I had an opinion about something, they'd look at me and say, well, that's stupid. And then they'd describe how they saw the world. And they might have had a different sense of politics, or they might have a different view about poverty, or they might have a different perspective on race, and sometimes their views would be infuriating to me. But it was because there was this space where you could interact with people who didn't agree with you and had different backgrounds than you that I then started testing my own assumptions. And sometimes I changed my mind. Sometimes I realized, you know what, maybe I've been too narrow-minded. Maybe I didn't take this into account. Maybe I should see this person's perspective. But somewhere along the way... It is not about creating an intellectual space. It is not. Do you understand that? It's about creating a home here. Things changed. This evening's speaker, Dr. Charles Murray. (laughs) Over the past two decades especially, we've watched as college campuses... The places that once embodied freedom of speech and freedom of inquiry transform into environments of forced intellectual sameness. A violent protest on the campus of UC Berkeley. Where mobs of students attack their classmates. Who demand that professors be fired. Who claim that hearing a speech from someone like Condoleezza Rice makes them unsafe. If you want to engage with the scholar and you believe that your right to see them and engage with them is so strong that you don't care about the potential trauma or the potential violence this could bring to marginalized students, then I think it's a pretty selfish idea. Or that a college club hosting the likes of a scholar like Charles Murray or a conservative like Ben Shapiro are literally violence. In fact, Murray's appearance did result in violence of a different kind. When Professor Stanger was escorting Murray out, they were attacked by a mob, and she was left with a concussion and whiplash. There is no organization 
that's done more to fight for freedom of speech on American campuses over the past 20 years than FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Education. I became aware of FIRE when I was 19 years old as a college student who turned to FIRE for much-needed support. Now, FIRE is the kind of organization that you hope will go out of business, that the problem they're trying to solve will go away, that they won't be necessary anymore. But as our friend Andrew Sullivan has perfectly put it, we all live on campus now. And so as the politics of campus life have become the politics of the country, where now 62% of Americans say they hold views they are afraid to share in public, FIRE's work has become that much more important. So not only is FIRE not going out of business, FIRE is radically expanding. Their fight now is not just on campus. It's to fight for the First Amendment rights of everyone in the country. In many ways, they are picking up the flag that the ACLU has put down. Today, I sit down with the president and CEO of FIRE, Greg Lukianoff. Greg is a First Amendment lawyer, and he's also the co-author, along with former Honestly guest Jonathan Haidt, of The Coddling of the American Mind. If you know anything about me, even if it's the first time you're listening to this podcast, you know that freedom of speech and freedom of thought and freedom of conscience are at the center of my life and everything that I do. It's the reason that I'm doing this podcast. It's the reason I no longer work at the New York Times. And I think Greg does an incredible job in this conversation of explaining that wherever you fall politically, that returning to the radical wisdom of the First Amendment and the values of the First Amendment are important to every single one of us and important to the future of American democracy. Stay with us. You're about to hear a preview of The Jordan Harbinger Show, where we expose how patent trolls shake down innocent victims using legal loopholes and abuse of the system. Hello, I notice you've been sued for patent infringement. I'd be happy to represent you for a price. Just remember, your defense cost is going to run around $3 million. Wow. The patent we were sued on had, as I recall, 113 claims. And every claim was almost the same. In other words, one claim would say, a computer accessing another computer to unlock software. And the next thing would be, software unlocked by one computer accessing another computer. That was just the same thing over and over 113 times, phrased a little bit differently each time. Since it took us four years and $2 million to overturn one of those sentences, they could put us through this for the rest of our lives. For more with Austin Meyer, including the details of his investigation into patent trolls and why none of us are safe, check out episode 326 of The Jordan Harbinger Show. There's so much more to Jewish history than persecution. I know it's sometimes hard to believe that when you talk to Jews, but trust me, there is. And in Jewish History Unpacked, the newest podcast from the people who brought you Unpacking Israeli History, you'll find out about some of the craziest, most amazing, but lesser-known stories that fill the Jewish history books. Given that the Jewish people's history goes back for millennia and spans continents and epochs, there are so many stories you just won't want to miss. You'll end up asking yourself questions that you never thought of, like, was Napoleon actually a hero for the Jews? And why were there so many suicide pacts in the first century? Hosts Yael Steiner and Jonathan Schwab will fill you in on what happened, how it happened, and why all of these ancient stories still matter. You can find Jewish History Unpacked wherever you listen to your podcasts.
Greg Lukianoff, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Barry. Good to see you. Okay, so Greg, let's jump in here. Why is freedom of speech, the concept, the right, why is it so important? Why dedicate your life to fighting for it? I think that we are very lucky as Americans that we can start to take it for granted. The, the very fact that we don't appreciate it sufficiently is, is testament to how well it's actually worked. And one thing I always want to point out is that I call my blog the eternally radical idea, and that is a reference to freedom of speech. Because freedom of speech is challenged in every generation, and it's usually on the, on the losing side. We've been lucky enough to grow up during a time when free speech law was on the rise, uh, First Amendment was getting stronger, and for most of our lives, free speech culture w- was actually quite strong. Norms of hearing people out at least, or you know, believing that everyone has a right to their opinion. And it's easy to forget how historically unusual that is. Meanwhile, freedom of speech, it, first of all, let's just be authentically ourselves. Second of all, it's crucial to democracy. It's great for innovation. Art, at least interesting art, is not possible without it. Um, it's been one of the reasons why there's been so much you know, innovation and progress, and we've been able to live together with people who otherwise would be fighting civil wars for in the old country, and you know, by respecting their right to both speak and to the vote, it's also a, a huge engine for peace. So freedom of speech, I think, is an underappreciated at the moment, uh, great positive force in human history. You call it the eternally radical idea, you know, and if you look at human history, free speech was absolutely not the norm. So can you give us a little bit of an understanding of the history of freedom of speech? Like, what are its origins? Where does it come from as an idea? Yeah, well, David Graeber, you know, writes a lot about maybe there actually was a lot more sort of semi-democratic kind of societies in, in before, you know, recorded history. Then that's always possible. Um, that, that essentially there might, when we look at tribal societies, a lot of times there is a lot more sort of uh, give and take among members of the tribe. But as far as recorded history is concerned, where we really start seeing any discussion of free speech at all is understandably the small democratic societies in Greece. And while they had a golden age and while, you know, um, the different forms of freedom of speech were essential to to, uh, democracy, it didn't last very long. And that was something that our founders in, in, in the U.S. were very, very aware of, that essentially democracy is fragile. But you shouldn't be too surprised to not see that much discussion about the philosophical value of freedom of speech outside of small societies until you get to the printing press. Because when it's literally not possible for you to communicate to millions of people at a time, then it's literally academic. But almost as soon as the printing press is invented in Europe around the 1450s, you start having free speech purists come out onto the scene saying that, you know, the press, literally freedom of the press, the press should be free. So it's only a couple of centuries ago that you really start getting more detailed thought about freedom of speech. But that's when you get people like John Milton in Arapagitica in 1644 talking about freedom of speech. That's when you get uh, Cato's letters having beautiful uh, stories about freedom of speech that really affected the, the founding fathers in our country uh, in the 18th century. Then, of course, you know, 1859, you've got the great John Stuart Mill, a, a book we still quote because the argument is so well made. Um, but it was only, believe it or not, and, and you'll know this, but a lot of your listeners probably won't. Even though we were lucky enough to have a First Amendment protecting freedom of speech in the United States as of 1791, it was basically legally toothless until about 1925. 
partially because prior to the 14th Amendment, it was generally understood that the only thing that the First Amendment limited was the federal government, not the state government. But after the 14th Amendment, in my opinion, the 14th Amendment was intended to take all of the Bill of Rights and apply it to all the states. But so it wasn't until about um, 1918, 1919 that you started having people like Oliver Wendell Holmes and the great Louis Brandeis Mm -hmm. talking about freedom of speech um, and that the First Amendment should mean something. And that was only became something that that the court really uh, started to follow in about 1925. So most of like the history of free speech in the U.S. is 1925 and after, or more importantly, even the late 50s on up, because that's when you start having, you know, uh, FDR, regardless of what you may think of him, talked a good game, at least on freedom of speech. And you started having free speech culture get stronger at the same time that free speech law was getting stronger. And by the way. It's not a coincidence that the gay rights movement, the women's rights movement, and the civil rights movement starts up in earnest really in the late 1950s. They've been trying to do this stuff for decades before, but it was only when you had a free speech culture meet free speech law that this great progress became possible. So you mentioned the importance of free speech to innovation, to democracy. You just mentioned gay rights, civil rights, the importance of free speech to marginalized groups. And obviously, you know, free speech is crucial to a field like mine, a field like journalism. Absolutely. Talk to me about why freedom of speech is so foundational a right in the world of education. I always forget who the, who the thinker who, who wrote this, but he said that it was probably a mistake to start calling the Enlightenment the Enlightenment. What we should have called it was the discovery of ignorance. And I've hmm. always liked that idea because as arrogant as we First Amendment free speechy people sound – Ultimately, what we're all about is epistemic humility. It's about knowing in the grand scheme of things, none of us individually are all that clever. We're consistently self-deceiving. We're wrong about a billion things. Our intuitions are nonsense. And that's when you start having like the scientific revolution. You know, to this day, people are still kind of surprised, you know, what Galileo found out, in, you know, in 1608 or whatever, that heavier and lighter things fall at the same rate. So when we started discovering how many things our intuitions, our folk wisdom, our legends, our assumptions were wrong about, and we started testing things, everything opened up. Suddenly when we, when we gave up on us knowing, uh, you know, our grandfathers knowing everything, that's when you start having unprecedented scientific progress. And when it comes to higher education, higher education is supposed to be the engine for innovation, for producing, you know, well-tested knowledge for not just the rest of American society, but at this point, really for the rest of the world. And it doesn't work if people can't actually engage in thought experimentation, engage in devil's advocacy, test, you know, dearly held assumptions, um, and be able to fearlessly question And I wish that described academia as it is today, but as we both know, unfortunately, uh, not so much. So in other words, the importance of it is the insistence on the fact that we don't know everything. And in order to get greater knowledge and greater truth about the world, we need the freedom to be able to experiment, to be able to take risks and be wrong. Absolutely. That, that, that's exactly right. And if you just so happen to be right about everything that you've, that your, your received wisdom, then that's just dumb luck. Um, <laughs> that has nothing to do. And you tend also not to understand why you were right in the first place. So I call this Mills Trident. You know, he, he says there's only really three possibilities when you're having an argument to get to the truth. Either you're 100% right, 
which is extremely unusual, but you won't understand why you were right unless you have to actually argue about it, that you were partially right or wrong, and you only get that finer sense of what the world really looks like until you actually start challenging those. And that's most of, most of the time when people are arguing, they, there's some aspect of truth in, in what either side is saying. Um, so you need that then. And then, of course, a lot of cases you're 100% wrong. So good riddance to your bad idea. And so in all of these situations, free speech gets you there. Not by itself. It needs the help of rules for argumentation as well. But you won't get to truth if nobody's allowed to even speak the truth. Okay, so in comes FIRE. What was FIRE's original mission? What drives FIRE's founders, Alan Kors and Harvey Silverglade, to start the organization? So Harvey and Alan became friends at Princeton in the 1950s. And they opposed uh, group chapel, the fact that everybody was required to go to chapel because they're both Jewish, but also because they thought it was unprincipled um, to require them at a school that's not supposed to be nominally religious. And they became friends and Alan went the way of a PhD and specializing in the history of the Enlightenment, and Harvey became a defense attorney. But then in the 80s, they started noticing that students were getting in trouble as often for what they said as what they did, actually sometimes even more often as, as the 80s went on. The 80s, I sometimes call it the first great age of political correctness on campus. I was going to say, this is like the original awakening before exactly. woke was even a thing, right? Exactly. So uh, free speech movement begins only in 1964. Already by 1972, the Supreme Court is like, you know what, you guys are right. The First Amendment has strong protections, not just for professors, which were already established, but also for students. So hooray, story's over. Great. And unfortunately, I joke that there might have been like one perfect week of, of free speech on campus in, say, like 1977, when the... <laughs> You know, when the old censorship had ended, but before the new censorship began. <laughs> and unfortunately, there were people, you know, who are in the news a lot today, like Richard Elgato, and Mary Matsuda, and other scholars who started advocating for, you know what, actually, the problem is just like Herbert Marcuse, the famous Marxist, said in 1965, of all times, that actually to really have, you know, true freedom, we need repressive tolerance. We need to actually um, clamp down on offensive speech. It's not good enough just to protect freedom of speech. And, you know, this, hopefully this sounds to everybody, or at least it did for most of my life, sound like an utterly terrible idea. But on campus, it had a lot of currency. Mm -hmm. You know, there are battles over culture war issues, affirmative action, for example. And by the mid-80s, you started having campuses across the country passing speech codes. Uh, now, the good news is that off-campus, black, white, liberal, Republican, were pretty horrified because they'd just come around to the idea that higher ed was supposed to be the citadel of freedom of speech. So this seemed utterly hypocritical. Um, and unsurprisingly, to those of us you know, who come from a civil liberties background, some of the first students who started getting in trouble were the very minority students that they sought to protect. That's always going to happen. It never The codes never work out how you think they're going to. And Greg, what was the dynamic? Like, who was pushing the speech codes? Was it professors or was it students? In the 80s, it was professors with some support from students and some support from administrators. But th this was definitely in the 80s, it was much more professor-led. Um, and one of the things that led to the end of the, you know, the first great age, great age of political correctness is that professors and students kind of cooled on the idea of, you know, repressive tolerance, on the idea of, you know, maybe uh, of speech codes, because it just looked so embarrassing and such a bad idea in retrospect. 
But one of the points that I make in my big, overly long 6,000-word feature um, uh, in, in Reason for, from last January uh, was that everybody did this kind of collective, whew, you know, PC has become a joke. There's been five decisions that have overturned campus speech codes. Um, people are starting to feel kind of embarrassed that they advocated them in the first place. Thank goodness that's over, whew. But that's not what happened. What happened was from 1995, from the death of the last speech code at Stanford, to 2015, things got much, much worse, including a huge increase in the number of speech codes. And most of my career was basically spent shouting in the wilderness saying, guys, this is bad and it's getting worse. And this is going to have really negative downstream effects for all of American society. So Give us a sense of the kind of cases that FIRE has taken on over the years, because I think one of the things that makes you so special and makes the organization so special is the fact that you defend cases on the, quote, right and the, quote, left, although I think those things are are changing. So give us a sense of the kind of spectrum of work that you guys have done. My first letter at FIRE way back in 2001, it was right after 9-11, and there was a professor who cracked a joke in class saying, anyone who can blow up the Pentagon has my vote. This is a famously, you know, um, jokey professor who, who's known for being irreverent and outrageous, uh, but they went after his job. And obviously this is Pro- Professor Berthold, he's on the left, and that was a no-brainer, absolutely, you know, going to defend them. At the same time, you had people, you know, on the right who were saying, hey, let's go get the terrorists and being told that they can't say that because that might be offensive to um, uh, to Muslim and Arab students there, which, of course, you know, is kind of like, wait, no, I think they probably agree that we should be going after the terrorist. Isn't it kind of offensive to assume that, that, that you know, Middle Eastern students are going to have sympathy for that? Um, so that from right out of the gate, we were in intense cases, um, you know, go, going on at the time. And it shows you how different it was. I was on an MSNBC as much as I was on Fox News um, talking about these cases. And boy, have times changed. Okay, and just quickly, Greg, how does FIRE actually work? Because as I understand it, and from what I remember from back in the day, a lot of the power of the organization starts with these strongly worded letters that you guys write to administrators at different universities. Well, you know, we, we try to be we try to be relatively nice. I, I, li- I like to think because we usually give universities a chance to correct the record and do the right thing. So people come to us about fifteen hundred cases a year uh, just for campus alone that we look at at this point. And keep in mind that about eighty percent of four year students attend only about six hundred schools. So fifteen hundred is a big number because it you know means m- most campuses. So. They come in, we find out if they have a case, not necessarily a legal case, but if they have a, you know, a strong argument that can be made. We figure out what happened in it, you know, we get the documentation, and then we write the school saying, this is our understanding of the facts. Please correct the record if we're, if we're wrong. But if this is correct, this is a crazy violation of their First Amendment rights or the promises of freedom of speech that private schools often have in place. And early on, Barry, you would be surprised at how often that letter would succeed in getting a university to back down. Now, the next step would be that if they didn't back down is that we would take the case public. And that was when you overwhelmingly schools would back down. Alan always put it really well that universities cannot defend in public what they do in private. 
and so litigation was not our primary weapon. I, I mean, I was the only attorney on staff for a couple of years there, believe it or not. But as time went on, uh, I'd say the biggest change was around 2013, 2014. Prior to t- about 2014, students on campus uh, for my entire career were good on freedom of speech. They got offensive mm. lyrics. They got a f- edgy comedy. They got the, uh, the right to provoke. And that changed, not in any subtle way, that changed like lightning struck in 2014. Um, suddenly, students were demanding new speech codes. They were demanding disinvitations. They are demanding all this uh, new censorship, but using sort of medicalized language to justify it, which is why I started uh, working with uh, Jonathan Haidt on trying to figure out what on earth was going on. Okay, so... If previously in the 80s, the impulse to censorship and censoriousness and speech codes were coming from faculty largely, and students were the ones that were raising, you know, the flag for free speech, all of a sudden in around 2013 or 2014, that dynamic shifts. And now the demand is coming from students, the very people you would think would want to be rebellious, are arguing for more safety. What happened? in 2013 or 2014 to cause this dramatic flip? Well, but before we get to that, I want to give one sort of not so great shout out to administrators, um, because administrators for my entire career, like deans, people in charge of res life, they'd been the ones who were trying to get professors and students alike in trouble for what they said from my first day at fire back in 2001 and to this day. So administrators, you know, are still a big, huge part of the problem. What started changing in 2014 is they were usually trying to do this without the help of students, with students rolling their eyes about like how catastrophizing and and ridiculous the administrators were being. That changed in 2014. And suddenly you had a much more anti-speech kind of ethos among young people. And you had administrators perfectly happy to allow, you know, some students to occupy the president's office and not others um, to help them uh, prosecute students um, who, who say things that are offensive to try to get professors fired right along with them. So the, the role of the administrator is really important because the hyper bureaucratization of universities, the fact that there are many more administrators at this point than there are full time professors is a big part of the problem. What kind of cases did you start seeing around 2013 or 2014 that made you think, whoa, something really different is going down on American campuses? Yeah, I mean, the first clue that we got was the shout down of Ray Kelly back in the end of 2013, and he was shouted down at Brown. Racism is not for debate. Ray Kelly was one of the top people in the the NYPD under Giuliani. And one of the things he's most known for is something that, as a civil liberties guy myself, I completely oppose, by the way, I want to be clear on this, is stop and frisk. We're asking you to stop stopping and frisking people. He comes to speak at Brown, and he is shouted down so completely that nobody can hear it, and they just call the whole thing off. Now... Shoutdowns were not completely unheard of for most of my career, but let, like take, for example, what happened at, at Columbia at one point. Um, I think it was around 2006. Jim Gilchrist from the Minutemen shows up, which is a you know group of people trying to get together civilians to police the, uh, the Mexican border. Obviously controversial and for good reason. But students get up and they sort of run them off stage and shout and, and cancel the event.
to give you an idea of like how much things have changed, John Stewart made fun of this on The Daily Show. There's Gilchrist talking, and then here are the protesters just minding their own business. And uh, in fact, this gentleman seems particularly peace-loving. May have seemed confrontational, but I have a transcript of what he was actually saying. Can we go back and roll the tape? Uh, Thank you for speaking at our university! We welcome all viewpoints! Cake and punch in the next room! As for the protesters... As for the protesters, stop complaining. You rushed the stage. It's a scary thing for the person who's invited to speak on the stage. What made the Ray Kelly thing so different was suddenly everybody was like, you know, right on students. That was good. That This is exactly what they should be doing. You know, uh, no platform for hate. And to the credit of the president of Brown at the time, she actually did take a stand against it, thinking the dynamic was like it used to be. But I don't think anybody wanted to follow in President Paxson's footsteps after that because it was, you know, the, the blinding moral certainty of the students that nothing could be gained from hearing out Ray Kelly was just so ferocious. And that's when you really started having even people who should know better off campus saying, you know, right on students. What do you remember happening next? What was the next big incident or case or few that made you think, okay, what happened with Ray Kelly isn't just a one-off. It's actually the harbinger of a much, much wider change. There were so many incidents suddenly in 2014. And we've been talking about disinvitations at fire internally forever, you know, and we'd always joke about it being disinvitation season, you know, and that was usually around the time that in the spring semester when people were picking commencement speakers that were like, oh, it's disinvitation season again. But what I previously <laughs> thought was, you know, students um, can protest, and of course they can. We defend their right to it. They can, they can disapprove of a speaker. They're completely within their rights, but the school shouldn't withdraw an invitation on the basis of viewpoint. And they started having such success at getting them disinvited that we started to realize, wait a second, no, if if every single conservative speaker, or for that matter, mildly centrist speaker, starts getting disinvited, that's not good for the environment for free speech on any of these campuses, and, and for academic freedom as well, and for really knowing the world as it is. And the ones that really got people's attention in 2014, going after Condoleezza Rice, speaking at Rutgers, was a big one. What do we want? big movement. And this one did involve professors as well and students to get Condoleezza Rice disinvited. But what really surprised people was Christine Lagarde at the International Monetary Fund, who was going to speak at Smith, you know, a great example of a, of a wildly successful woman at, at, at a women's college, you know, think would go over well, but they got her disinvited. What was their beef with Lagarde? Something about IMF policies not being good for the third world, which, which is absolutely an argument um, to make. But then you come to the speech and, you know, mm -hmm. ask some tough questions. Like, you just don't try to silence the whole thing. There's something that can be gained. Okay, well, just to play devil's advocate here, one thing you hear a lot from skeptics is this. I don't know anyone interesting who wasn't a little overzealous about something in college. It could be that you go radical vegan, some people become Marxist, they're still Marxist, other people go the opposite way and get way too deep into Ayn Rand. <laughs> and the understanding, right, in, in our culture broadly is that it's college and it's healthy in a way to dive deep into something you're passionate about. Sure. What makes you believe or know that this isn't just a hyped up version of that old phenomenon? What makes what's happening right now different? 
Wow, where do you, where do you even begin? I mean, coddling the American mind, um, you know, all of this is trying. We we spent ninety five thousand words trying to get about what what was so different about this this movement. Now, the first thing that really distinguishes it from previous student rights movements and um, from student activism in the sixties is that in the sixties it was a very strong don't tell me what to do, you are not my parents movement. It was autonomy. It was the kind of stuff that Erica Christakis at Yale, you know, argued in her infamous Halloween letter. But nonetheless, her argument was that students are usually seeking more autonomy, more freedom. Uh, And it was very strange. And this had been my career as well, which was like, don't tell us what to do. Um, Don't give us more bureaucrats all the way up until about 2013, 2014, when suddenly the entire script was flipped where it was, no, we want people in power to have more power because we think that will work out well for us, mm-hmm. which historically, of course, is is not a good historical bet. <laughs> that, particularly if you have an unpopular point of view, you don't, like, don't want to give power, uh, uh, power more power. So that's one. The basing it in psychology and, and, and a psychology of mental and emotional frailty, you can go back to the Victorian era and say that they argued that it was usually women's presumed frailty meant that we had to clamp down on sexually suggestive speech, something that I thought had been completely rejected. But as you start seeing on campus what they were arguing for trigger warnings and for policing microaggressions, it was based in this idea that you could be permanently harmed by experiencing things you don't like and even hearing arguments you don't like. Now, this is a terrible idea because as someone who struggled with depression myself, who became, frankly, suicidally depressed in 2007, partially because of the sheer exhaustion of the culture war, I was someone who did cognitive behavioral therapy, which is all about getting in the habit of talking down the exaggerated voices in everybody's minds that make them anxious and depressed, like catastrophizing, saying that, you know, mm-hmm. like if this date or this interview goes poorly, my life is ruined. Um, and it was amazing to see students making these arguments that presumed their own mental f- fragility and that of their peers, because I was afraid this is a self-fulfilling prophecy. This is teaching young people to have the mental habits of anxious and depressed people. This is going to, by itself, make them anxious and depressed. So when we published our first article back in 2015 in in The Atlantic, we thought we might see like a small scholarly, you know, downturn in student mental health and young people mental health. But instead, it's been an absolute skyrocketing rates of anxiety, depression, and Mm -hmm. we all saw it coming. Another change that's been taking place over the past little while, first on campus and now beyond campus, isn't just the closing of the Overton window, right? The the spectrum of what is acceptable to say, what's acceptable to tweet without getting canceled or shamed has radically narrowed. And yet at the same time, the list of things you're required to say to be in good standing has only gotten longer. And that's the thing that's often called compelled speech. There's tons of examples of this, but I wonder if you could talk to me about a case that's ongoing right now at the University of Washington regarding this Professor Stuart Regis. I wish it wasn't such a typical case. So Stuart Regis is a professor at University of Washington. He's always been provocative. Uh, in the 80s, he risked his career by talking about being gay. And that was a big deal in the 80s. People forget. Um, and in the 90s, he definitely got in trouble many times for being so adamant about ending the war on drugs, which was not a popular opinion in the 90s. But just this past semester, 
He was asked, as uh, most professors were at University of Washington, to include a land acknowledgement in his syllabus. This is more popular in Canada, uh, for example, sort of nodding at the fact that, well, this Indian tribe lived here and therefore we should say that this is all taking place on stolen land is oftentimes the way uh, this goes. Um, he wasn't about to be told what to do. He had the much more um, old-fashioned I- idea of, of wanting autonomy. Um, and he, he wrote, I acknowledge that by the labor theory of property, the Coast Salish people can claim historical ownership of almost none of the land currently occupied by the University of Washington. <laughs> <laughs> so when you ask professors to speak on their own behalf, you better let them. And instead, what they did here was they actually memory hold the whole syllabus. They took the syllabus off the website and they've launched an investigation that's now been going on for four months. I mean, he could lose his job over this, which is one of the reasons why we wanted to litigate right away. They even set up a sort of shadow curriculum of recorded cl- of recorded classes by a different, less offensive, I guess, professor that students could take instead of taking Regis's class. What is the university's argument? On what grounds are they doing this? I mean, like, what leg is there possibly for them to stand on here? They don't really have an argument other than decent people would, of, of course, not be so offensive. You know, like, it, it's one when you talk about the Overton window, I now call it the Overton people, that essentially, <laughs> like, you have these administrators who are so, uh, they're so used to sort of an environment where everyone agrees on these things and, are, and they're constantly being pushed, you know, further and further, that it just seemed unthinkable that if you demand and a professor do a compelled speech in his syllabus that it won't work out exactly the way that they assume it will. So one of the ones that I was interested in comes from the University of Toledo. Mm-hmm. So in February, the school was considering this policy that would require all professors to use students' preferred first names in all communications that occur on campus. And Fire wrote a letter urging the University of Toledo to reject that policy And I want to understand why. Well, there is always a risk when you require people to say things. And I I say this a lot because it's been largely lost. As bad as it is to tell people what they can't say, it's even worse to tell them what they must say. And generally, anything that encroaches on a professor's ability to control their classroom, for example, is a violation of academic freedom. And we have seen a giant uptick in professors being told that they have to you know, address people by either their preferred pronouns or whatever name that they care to be called. Now, it is debatable in a professional situation. Can you say, like, this student wants to be called by this pronoun, that you have to do that. But so far, the one case that's actually come through, a court found that you can't make professors do that. So let me just make sure I understand it. If I come into class at the University of Toledo and or any university and I say to the professor, I identify as they, call me by they, them pronouns, does the professor have to honor that or not honor that? The law might change, but the first decision that had a case like this, they found for the professor's right to not have to use pronouns of the student's choice. Interesting. So it seems to me like there is a sort of gap here between the normal cultural mores at most American universities and colleges and what the law actually says. Oh, yeah. No. And widening. Um, This is particularly true, by the way, in, in due process cases. One thing that FIRE does on campus that we don't do um, in our off-campus expansion is we defend due process of people accused of sexual harassment. Now, 
why is this particularly important or, or particularly a hot button issue is because those speech codes that we were talking about going back to the 80s, those were all harassment codes. Those were all trying to reconceptualize or make the argument that uh, merely offensive speech was by definition harassing. Judges never fell for this, but for whatever reason on campus, we definitely do. The case where it gets really emotionally charged, of course, is when the fact that uh, under Title IX, a extreme form of harassment is sexual assault and rape. We've always argued that if you're going to be you know, investigating crimes, you need to provide some minimal level of due process on campus. And we've been in the meetings in some cases where general counsels will talk to the Department of Education saying, listen, you're putting us in a position where you're demanding that we give less free speech to students. You're demanding that we give them fewer due process protections. Mm -hmm. And that's going to get us on the losing side of a court case. And over the years, it's just gotten worse and worse. Well, the, the pronoun issue is actually really kind of naughty and interesting, I think, because the compassionate, empathetic part of me says, life's hard enough. You sure. know, if you're a professor and a student comes in and they want to be identified as a pronoun that seems unusual, just do it, mm -hmm. you know, because why not? And because compassion and because kindness. But I can also think about the way in which this would compel professors to essentially ascribe to a political worldview, right? So let's say I come into a class and I'm a student and I say to my teacher, the only way you could refer to me is as Z. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, I'm thinking of a crazy TikTok I saw the other day where a person said that she wanted to be referred to as bun self, like a hair bun, I guess. I you know, and by asking the professor to call me Z or bun self or, you know, superhero or whatever the thing is, you're actually asking the person to say something that they don't believe is true or real. So what is the sort of ethical answer to this question and what is the legal one? Well, you know, it, it's one of these things where so something that has changed in the discussion is – the First Amendment and the, the entire sort of Bill of Rights, it speaks to human nature so well because it shows that both we can be capable of great things and great compassion, but you also have to be somewhat cynical about how things will be abused. So when mm -hmm. I first heard about this, this was from a gay Cuban professor at an art mm. school who was saying that students were coming in and they're dressed by one pronoun for the first three or four weeks. And then he'd have a complaint uh, filed against him because on the fifth week, they decided to be addressed by a different pronoun. And because the professor didn't check in that that had changed, that professor was now in trouble. And I remember him talking to me saying, like, when did I become the man? Because when you start having situations <laughs> where people can be required to sort of do what the student tells them to do, that is going to be abused in some ways. So that cynicism about human nature, it seems to have partially fallen out of the discussion. And you can't really understand anything regarding humans without a little bit of like, ooh, how is this going to be abused as well as used? After the break, Greg and I talk about some of the messier aspects of freedom of speech, like... Should Donald Trump be banned from Twitter? Stay with us.
This holiday season, pay tribute to the people who fought for our freedom to celebrate. Featuring the largest American flag in the region, Spirit Park is now open at National Harbor, honoring active duty military and veterans. Take some time this holiday to remember, offer gratitude, and be inspired by the sacrifices of our service men and women who make our way of life possible. Plan your visit at nationalharbor.com slash spiritpark. That's nationalharbor.com slash spiritpark. I don't think, you know, even the most cynical and pessimistic among us 20 years ago who saw what was happening on campus could have anticipated how much this ideology that we're talking about will have swallowed the culture, right? The turn against freedom of speech, not just on campus, but in politics, in journalism, in the broader culture, including in organizations like the ACLU. Where is it coming from? What is driving it, do you think? Well, you know, there's always regression to the mean, basically that essentially since censorship is situation normal for human history, um, and and when you take it for granted, there's a tendency to regress back towards, I call it censorship gravity. It's like a black hole pulling us all back in. But honestly, a big part of it, and this really bugs me, Barry, is that higher education is still central to this story. And this Mm -hmm. is why I am, we are not giving up what we're doing on campus. We are going to keep that. And actually, we want to expand that. You know, I'd like to really be able to say this school is better than that school. And they've contributed to it getting worse in so many different ways. You know, one, of course, is uh, adopting speech codes and adopting the the Marcusean, uh, you know, definition of free speech. But also, shout out to my friend Jonathan Haidt, um, by becoming – to having so little viewpoint diversity among their administrators, among their professors, because freedom of speech is the argument of the minority, of the unpopular person, um, because the majority in a democracy has the vote to protect them. The rich and powerful have rich and powerful to protect them. Um, so you only really need a separate idea for freedom of speech for unpopular ideas or at least ideas that are unpopular with p- the people in control, the people with power. Higher education cannot admit to itself that it's the hegemon. It cannot admit to itself that it's incredibly influential, um, so, uh, disappointingly homogenous in terms of political points, uh, points of view, um, and, like, incredibly wealthy. If you hear the way some of these university representatives talk, you would think that they're the underdog in American mm-hmm. society today. And because they can't own, even though they, they claim to be obsessed with things like power and privilege, since they can't own their own power and privilege. But the power comes in denying it. Exactly. I do think that this comes partially from lack of viewpoint diversity in higher ed. So I think there's lack of viewpoint diversity. And then I think there's something that we've touched on earlier in the conversation, which is the way that the people who want to shut down speech, to narrow the Overton window to a sliver, uh, and to shut down people they disagree with, is they use a very, very, very powerful weapon. And that's the language of violence and of harm. That if you don't do this, you are threatening my life If you don't do this, you are raising the risk of suicide among me and the other people in my marginalized community. And that's how you get people claiming, you know, at the paper of record at the New York Times, that an op-ed by a sitting senator literally threatened their lives. Or how you get people inside very prestigious companies like Netflix claiming that jokes from Dave Chappelle are going to cause mass suicide. How important is sort of the language of violence and harm to the success of this movement? 
Yeah. Um, as, as far as a trend that I wanted to stop as soon as I saw it, it's, it's the attempt to turn speech into violence. Uh, and it's a great rhetorical weapon. And I've seen also in the New York Times, Height and I took the task, an article by, I think her name is Lisa Feldman Barrett. She's a uh, professor who was arguing that because we now know that words can cause stress and stress can cause harm, then therefore speech is violence. And Haidt and I were just like, oh man, what can't cause stress? What, For that matter, what good thing in life can't cause stress? Falling in love causes stress. Being broken up with, is this all violence? Hmm. And the point that I really wanted to hit as well was, I don't think they understand that speech is the same thing as violence isn't a new argument. It's an ancient argument. And mm. what they're missing out on is that there was a cultural invention at one point to make a bright line distinction between what you say and what you do. Is it a cultural construct? Yes. Uh, is it arbitrary? No. It's been a tremendous formula for democracy, innovation, all those other things that we talked about before. And the rediscovery, you know, of this idea that, wow, your words assault my dignity. They're discovering an ancient idea that people in power used to, used to argue. They're rediscovering the idea um, that people used to duel over. Mm -hmm. So th this decision that words can now be reconceptualized as violence because I say so, it is the welcoming point to a spiral of violence. This is what happened, by the way, at um, the Milo riots in Berkeley. An explosive display of anger to stop ultra-conservative Breitbart editor Milo Yiannopoulos from speaking on campus. It sends the message that under no means will we allow any of this to go on anywhere near Berkeley. So those, so that's an example where Milo Yiannopoulos, the kind of, some would say, troll, was scheduled to speak at Berkeley. In what year was it? 2017. Flames shooting into the air, burning a nearby tree. While many protesters here were peaceful, some grabbed these barriers and smashed in the windows at the student union, leaving a trail of destruction behind. Well, I definitely think that the students went way too far. And what, what ended up happening? So he ended up, they ended up canceling his speech because there was um, large numbers of Antifa uh, protesters there. And even though the speech was canceled and Milo, you know, had to be escorted off campus, there was a huge riot and it cost hundreds of thousands of dollars in damage. And people were really badly hurt. We talk about this in a chapter of Calling the American Mind, that watching those videos and interviewing, they are extremely lucky nobody was killed. And it wasn't for lack of trying. There was, there was someone like, you know, cracked in the head with a, um, a big pool of blood, you know, lost consciousness for, uh, you know, woke up like 12 hours later. Mm -hmm. And the people who got hurt, a lot of them had nothing, wanted nothing to do with Milo. They just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time or were student journalists. And the student newspaper at Berkeley came up with a whole issue defending that violence as a form of speech and Milo's speech as violence. I remember this completely. And it blew me away. It was, it was absolutely chilling to read this because, you know, it's, it's um, again, getting back to this very bad idea. And in a time of, you know, profound polarization, this sets up a situation where, okay, so you're saying that my speech to you is violence, so you're justified in hitting me. But then, of course, I can hit you right back in self-defense. Like, this, this starts the spiral of violence right away. It's a profoundly bad idea. It strikes me just how much the sort of the rule of thumb in my mind has flipped. And, and here's what I mean. Grew up in a Jewish family, shocker. And <laughs> when, 
one issue we talked about so much with incredible pride was, you know, the way that the ACLU defended the rights of Nazis to march through Skokie. If ever there was an example of speech being violence, it would be that, right? Skokie, huge Jewish community, full of survivors of places like Auschwitz, with Nazis marching through the streets. But at the time, right, it was the liberals, it was the left that defended those rights. Now it seems like it's the left that's arguing the position that the Nazis should never have been able to march through Skokie. Why do you think that is? One, you know, the left got in power. <laughs> that, that is that if you're in power for a while, there's a tendency to be like, what is this nuisance freedom of speech that I'm, that, that I'm dealing with here? But, but to the credit of the old left, one of the reasons why things didn't go south sooner on campus was because, you know, old lefty professors were still believed in freedom of speech. So that, that was a major protection. But as times go by and you're in more and more politically homogenous environments, you start seeing free speech as the argument of the bully, the bigot and the robber baron, not as the you know, fundamental engine of progress. If you had to choose which side, so to speak, is worse right now, which would you choose, the right or the left? That is a good question. I do see um, some pretty crazy censorship coming from both sides. I would say on campus, it's definitely the left because the left dominates campus. Off campus, some of the stuff coming out of the legislatures has me worried. I think we're in a really weird moment, Barry, where freedom of speech is best defended by centrists, mm -hmm. which is historically extremely unusual because, as I said before, freedom of speech is the eternally radical idea. But the center is radical right now. Yeah, the, the center is actually radical right now. And I, and I see, you know, people who have an ability to dialogue across right and left as being, you know, some of the hope for the country because... Oof, yeah, I, I, I think we're caught in a polarization spiral that could get much worse any day. Right, right. So each side is sort of pointing to the other as the true danger while ignoring their own side's illiberal stance on free speech. Yeah, I think that's correct. And um, one of the things that, we're, that is going to make us different, too, from other free speech groups is that we're going to try to make an argument for free speech culture consistently. And what I mean by that is, you know, I, and I saw this happen among sort of more lefty-leaning free speech groups, is they seem to get more and more technical over the years about freedom of speech. It became less sweeping and more, while this person might be horrible, I nonetheless, with my, you know, plugging my nose, say that they should have a First Amendment right. We're going to try to make some pretty modest arguments, you know, but about uh, old idioms that we all used to share, that everyone's entitled to their opinion, that it's a free country, to each their own, all of these things that are good for a pluralistic democracy, but certainly on campus seems to have just been abandoned, uh, like yesterday's fish paper. I don't want to get too bogged down here because this could be its own two-hour conversation, but let's talk about the internet briefly and the role the internet is playing here. You know, yeah. it seems to me like a lot of this is coming from, not coming from, but is impacted by, let's say, the way the internet is melting our brains. 100%. How should we as a society think about making structural changes to social media to try and correct that in a way that honors the spirit of the First Amendment? Yeah, here's something that's going to sound kind of hopeless, but I do think there's hope at the end. 
Um, and I previously uh, described this as it being like 1521 in England. But what I'm saying there is that from the point of view of 1521, the printing press looked like a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> it led yes. to religious War. wars. It led to uh, the witch trials. And it didn't seem to be worth it at that point. But there was kind of no way that you could put the genie back in the bottle at that point when you suddenly have that many people introduced to the conversation. Now, it's not a surprise that when you go from something that added billions of people to the discussion, like social media, that that's going to be disruptive. There's no way around it. I don't think there's any way you can fix the current situation other than people starting to adapt cultural norms and habits around the reality and existence of social media. This is one of the times that I, I sometimes disagree with my, my friend and co-author, John, John Haidt, is that he sometimes sees more top-down solutions. Um, and he, he's got some good ideas. He, he thinks that if people were not anonymous on social media, that could actually make a big difference to how people behave. And I think he's probably right. But I don't think we're going to be able to fix it with any top-down solution. I think we have to learn to adapt to this new media reality. And I think we are starting to figure out some aspects of it. Our skepticism alone is actually progress, in my opinion. But unfortunately, I'd see no way, no easy solution out of this for a long time coming. I want to understand just how you apply your passion for a robust culture of free speech to the wild west of the internet. Uh-huh. So here's here's the litmus test. Like, should Trump have been kicked off of Twitter? Was that good or bad for a culture of free speech in America? Well, the way I inform um, my position on freedom of speech is try to uh, test it against actual legal standards. Because I think the American First Amendment, as, as I explained, is it, it's about 100 years of some of the smartest people in the country thinking about how you have freedom of speech in the real world. Now, the argument that he should have been kicked off refers to the Brandenburg incitement standard, which is a a 1969 case about when your encouragement to violence actually crosses the line. David French and there are other people, uh, you know, who are arguing that particularly with the hearings, you can say that Trump did actually intend for an imminent, uh, violent, illegal behavior to, to, to take place. And that's an absolutely riveting and interesting legal argument. But the question is, how much did his position on Twitter, how much did he use Twitter to actually achieve that? It is the bigger question. Was that standard reached on Twitter? I don't think so. And here's another thing. This is something that people really miss about free speech, and this is what I call my lab and the looking glass theory on freedom of speech, um, is that we kind of miss the major value of freedom of speech. It's really, and I'm gonna, it's going to sound overly simple, but it's really important. It is extremely important to know what people really think and why. And even there are people on the left arguing uh, at this point that, that Trump not being on Twitter got people to sort of not engage with them every day and, and figure out what he, what he was really thinking. So I think that there's a value in knowing what people really think and why, not even if it's bad, but in some cases, especially if you find it troubling. Let's talk about the places where even, you know, vociferous advocates for free speech find things messy. And to me, a lot of this comes down to the line between freedom of speech, freedom to be offensive, and discrimination. Yeah. Okay? So one example that comes to mind for me was at the very end of his term, Trump passed this executive order that had previously passed the Senate by unanimous consent. And the executive order said this, 
Jews need to be included in Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, which, for those who don't know, outlaws discrimination on campus based on national origin, ethnicity, and race. Because Jews predate those categories and therefore don't easily fit into any of them. And so as a result, even though anti-Semitism on campus is at historic highs, those cases were kind of falling between the cracks. And this order sort of gave enforcement guidance to the Office of Civil Rights, which makes sure that Title VI is enforced. To me, this seemed like an obviously good thing and something that FIRE would support. And yet FIRE opposed it and opposed it strenuously. And I wanted to ask you why. Yeah, our main objection there, and that in terms of discrimination against Jews. Um, we think that should be treated, one, if, particularly if you conceive of that as, as a religious group, that should be treated under the same lens as, say, racial discrimination, where the standard should be, if it's severe, persistent, and pervasive, based on membership in a group, you should be able to be punished for engaging in anti-Semitic harassment. Our analysis is just the same for Jewish groups as it would be for women or for minorities. The reason why we were troubled about the way it was put um, in that executive order is that it took the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, which includes a number of beliefs and statements about Israel, for example, about Judaism that are offensive to Jews, but nonetheless are protected speech. So in some ways, it's it's an argument just saying, like, listen, like, if you use this definition, then this is pretty tantamount to saying that these opinions about Israel and, and, and uh, about Jews are no longer protected speech. That's a problem. And what's interesting is the author of the IRH, IHRA, I was stumbled over this, definition, um, agrees with us. He thinks it shouldn't be used in an official capacity. It should be used more as a, as a suggestion, as more as kind of like a, an academic talking point. But as soon as it actually has anything like the force of law, it does become a viewpoint-based of going after anti-Semitic people. Now, and I want to be really clear, this is something that you'll hear from, from people who do First Amendment stuff, you know, particularly on the left. They would like to pretend that their anti-Semitism is not a problem in the United States and it's not a problem on campus. I do not believe that. I, um, and I, I got to see this get worse and worse over the years. I was invited to speak at the 50th anniversary of the Berkeley free speech movement back in 2014. And it was absolute madhouse and there was so much anti-Semitism in the room and probably like the craziest moment was when this guy put his hand up and just sort of interrupted me because that's what they meant by free speech. They meant everyone gets to talk. And he said, <laughs> um, people are going to call, you know, call, they call us anti-Semitic. Um, they call us all, all these kind of like dismissive names because we simply humbly recognize that the poison hand of Zionism destroys everything it touches. <laughs> and I was like, dude, you're an anti-Semite. <laughs> like, I know you don't think you're one, but like this, the, the entire theme here, like, like it, this is anti-Semitic. So I think it's a very real problem. And I think it can and should be addressed the same way other forms of discriminatory behavior are addressed. We just have an issue with the RHRA definition used in this way. I guess my understanding of the executive order was that it just talked about conduct, right? Mm -hmm. Like the all the order was doing was help regulators who might not understand that the poison hand of Zionism, which doesn't contain the word Jew, is the kind of anti-Jewish animus that might animate someone, I don't know, graffitiing a person's dorm because they're Jewish. Mm -hmm. In other words, if someone scrawls Zionist pig on your dorm room, 
and you're just a bureaucrat in this office that's meant to enforce this statute, you might not understand that that behavior is animated not because you're, quote, critical of Israel, but because you're anti-Jewish. Yeah. And I think there's lots of ways you could have achieved that. There are better ways you could have achieved that, Um, uh, legally bulletproof ways you could have achieved that without something that actually references particular points of view. Okay, so let's dig a little deeper into the line that sort of separates freedom of speech from action. I Mm -hmm. want to understand when an action is a mode of speech versus discrimination, right? Like the classic American example is it is illegal for the owner of a lunch counter, although we don't really have lunch counters anymore, let's say a cafe owner, to say no black people are allowed or no Mm -hmm. gay people are allowed. That is illegal. Yeah. You know, but then you've got a case like the Colorado cake baker who basically said, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, I'm sure you know this better than me, that he was willing to sell a gay couple a cake, but just not willing to make a special cake specifically saying happy gay wedding or something along those lines. And he claimed that making him do so would be compelled speech. I can understand both sides of the argument. So where do you fall on an example like that? And how do you separate out you know, actual discrimination from just, you know, offensive or hurtful speech. Yeah, the cake baker case was such an interesting one because it wasn't just the situation, like you said, of just providing someone with a a commercial service. The argument there, which I found persuasive, was that because it's a creative act, it's not just simply providing a commercial cake, you know, across a counter, that it actually involved an expressive act that if you require that cake baker to make that fancy cake art, that that's compelled artistic expression as opposed to simply, you know, a commercial transaction. So I think that that was the right way to understand that case. But that means when it comes to the practical importance of it, it applies more to telling someone that they have to, you know, mouth opinions they don't agree with rather than they have to actually deal with everyone equally. For the people who feel like the cake baker should be compelled to make Mm -hmm. the cake with the happy gay marriage art, What would they think about this example? Should a t-shirt maker be forced to make a t-shirt that says, God hates Jews? No, exactly. They should be. No, no, I don't think they should be. But I think that's a great way to make them understand that if the, you know, shoes were on the other foot, so to speak, they would get why. It's like, no, I don't have to, I don't have to do business with you. And that's the thing that we've gotten worse at is putting ourselves in like the counterfactual uh, of actually being kind of like, what if this was the exactly the opposite situation where it's a message that I would not want to participate in spreading? So I think most people sort of intuitively feel, yeah, you shouldn't have to make that T-shirt. What is the legal or ethical principle that drives this, right? What is the difference between the lunch counter example, you know, no service for X group and the t-shirt or the wedding cake example? You know, honestly, the law regarding that kind of stuff is a bit of a mess. When it comes to a First Amendment standpoint, you have the freedom of association, and this is one of the tensions. Universities will argue that they have the freedom of association to include or exclude whoever they want. And would they say this with regards to race or belief? Generally, no. But they did try to make this argument when they were saying that military recruiters couldn't come to campus. And this was challenged in court. And these were prestigious law professors all over the country joined this brief saying, 
as private schools, we have the freedom of association to not want to participate with people who discriminate against gay soldiers, so we don't have to have military recruiters here. This uh, brought the court together (laughs) in a unanimous opinion, saying, oh, yes, you do. Because if you understood your own argument, your own argument would basically mean that you could exclude anybody on any basis whatsoever, and that's not what we intended universities to be. Hmm. But is it the lunch counter is making the same hamburger, regardless of who the customer is, whereas the other two examples, like the cake maker or the T-shirt maker, they're being asked to convey particular messages that they might disagree with. And so those kind of messaged products are not the same thing substantively in the way the hamburger is. When it comes to freedom of association, we make uh, the status versus belief distinction that generally it's understandably prescribable for like the college Republicans to say that we discriminate against black people because that doesn't make any sense. There's nothing about, that's also wrong, of course, but there's nothing about being black that means you can't be a Republican. However, if they're trying to exclude people on the basis of not being Republicans or by being on the record and saying, I hate all Republicans, then of course they can, because that's related to their expressive purpose for existence in the first place. Okay, last question. As fire expands and becomes just so much bigger than it's ever been with this broad new mission, how will you know if you're winning? What does winning look like? What would be a sign that things are changing? Well, I think a good one would be the next time there's a big Twitter mob trying to cancel someone like Dave Weigel for retweeting a joke that the the, the newspaper or the company says, no, we're, we're not going to do this. We're, we are not going to suspend or fire an employee because they uh, some people didn't like a joke that was forwarded. Um, I think that would be a good sign. I think that, um, you know, if this happens at a different corporation, someone saying, you know, I'm actually proud to work in an organization where we have two people working together who vote for different people. I think that would be a really healthy sign, too. And on campus, oh, my God, so much has to change on campus. Um, a good start would be next time you have a shout down like you had at Yale in February. Um, that it gets seriously investigated um, because I'm willing to bet you're going to see that some administrators encouraged that behavior. Um, And I think that those people should be fired. I think that the fact that there have been so many uh, cases of abuses of free speech and academic freedom on campus and nobody's uh, being terminated for being a hindrance to, to academic freedom and free speech on campus is a bad sign. If that were to change, that would give me hope. Um, but definitely uh, something that I would love to hear people say more are things like, to each his own. Um, everyone's entitled to their opinion. It's a free country. All these old idioms of a free people, I would like to see them make a comeback. And my uh, fingers are crossed. My hopes aren't up. Um, but long term, I'm optimistic for free speech because, you know, free speech works. It's a tool for progress, peace, wisdom, authenticity. Um, and I wouldn't bet against it, at least not on the long run. Craig Lukianoff, sweating it out in Maine in order to talk to me on the mic. Thank you so, so much and can't wait to see what FIRE accomplishes in, in, in the coming years. Thank you, Barry. My thanks to Greg Lukiana for taking the time. If you haven't read the book The Coddling of the American Mind, written by Greg and Jonathan Haidt, go check it out. I can't recommend it more highly. If you listen to this conversation and you think, 
I want to learn more about fire. Or maybe you're thinking, I need fire's help. Go check out thefire.org. And as always, thanks to you for listening. Share this episode with your community. And if you're moved to support our work, we would love it. You can do that by subscribing at commonsense.news. See you next time. This is Brian Dean Wright, former CIA operations officer. By now, you've probably heard of my podcast, The President's Daily Brief. We travel around the world talking about the most pressing news of the day. And the goal is to take complicated issues, both here and abroad, and make them really simple to understand. We also talk about solutions to the problems that we discuss, just like the actual brief delivered to the president each day in the Oval Office. So download and subscribe to The President's Daily Brief, available on all major podcast platforms starting at 6 a.m. Eastern, Monday through Friday. It'd be a pleasure if you joined us.